Welcome everyone to Sources, Kane Academy's podcast on history and culture. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, Norman Sandridge and I sit down for a conversation about Hellenism. Norman is a professor of classics at Howard University and a fellow at the Center for Hellenic Studies. Both institutions are in Washington, D.C. We had a chance to talk about Hellenism and its relevance today. In particular, we talked about leadership and the kind of insights that we can draw from antiquity. I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, good morning, uh, Norman Sandridge. Uh, thanks for hosting me here at the Center for Hellenic Studies in Washington, D.C. Oh, well, um, thank you, Andrew, so much for the opportunity to, to talk with you. Yeah. Norman, I understand you are both a professor of classics at Howard University and a fellow here at the Center. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, how you got to this point? Uh, yeah, uh, well, I don't know how much you mean by a, a little exactly. Um, do you want like my college background? Or? Well, we might as well just run out the whole uh, resume, okay. the whole get, CV right yeah, here. I'll, I'll, be, uh, I'll be brief. Uh, basically, I was a, a physics and math uh, major in college, and I just happened to have an amazing uh, Latin professor my sophomore year who had come from the University of Oxford and built a castle in northern Alabama, I'm not joking, and started a, a Latin program and an ancient languages uh-huh. society. And uh, as much as I wanted to be an astronaut at the time, uh, this proved to be uh, far too compelling for me. So uh-huh. I ended up uh, going to Florida State for a master's degree in Latin, and then I transitioned to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, where uh-huh. I did a master's degree in Greek and then a PhD in classics. And then in 2005, I uh, got a job at Howard University, as you noted, and I've been there since, and I've been a a fellow here at the Center for Hellenic Studies since 2011. Wonderful. Uh, Very interesting that you started in in science, applied science at that, and uh, had an interest in all that, and um, uh, carried on into the humanities. So I'd like to double back on that a little bit later and talk about how those two things kind of feed each other. Uh, I'd like to start with um, exploring a little bit more about the center, the Center for Hellenic Studies. And as I understand from the mission statement, it was established to rediscover the humanism of the Hellenic Greeks. Can you explain that a little bit about what that means to rediscover and what the, the relevance of that humanism from antiquity is to our time? Yeah, so um, Hellenism refers to uh, ancient uh, Greek culture going back to the second millennium uh, BCE. Uh, The Minoans and Mycenaeans are probably most uh, familiar to your listeners. And then that, of course, includes the poetry of uh, of Homer and the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle and so forth. And um, in terms of the the legacy of Hellenism, excuse me, probably... Um, the, the biggest things uh, would include things like or- organized athletics, mm. uh, democracy, uh, medicine, mathematics, the, uh, not to say that ancient, other ancient cultures didn't have these. And in fact, the Greeks owe uh, a great debt to ancient cultures. But you know, when we think of the Greeks, these are often the things that we go uh, back to, uh, tragedy and comedy as genres of literature, things like that. Center's uh, mission for the last 50 years, uh, both to promote <clears throat> research in these areas at the highest level, 
um, but also to participate in the national conversation about the value of these things. So we're in Washington, D.C., so that uh, we can host people uh, who want to learn more about these things, who want to visit the library, use the library, but also uh, talk to our, our fellows in an ongoing uh, basis to, to learn from them how, how we're making meaning of the ancient world uh, for the next generation, or at least trying to. Just on the surface, a rediscovery and of and an emphasis on Hellenic studies is kind of countercultural today. And in some sense, the, the humanities in general are in a kind of free fall, mm-hmm. at least on the university level. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of Americans would say, well, okay, that's interesting for a rarefied few, but, but how does that... How does that relate to my life? How does it yeah, relate to being sure. a, a, a modern uh, American or a modern European or a modern Latin American or modern African? Sure, but but sure, given sure. that most of our teachers are working inside American schools, what, what's the relevance for being a contemporary American? Yeah, well, I, I guess that's a great question. and It doesn't have a 30-second answer, but I will try to give it. We'll give you 60. Sec- okay, we'll give 60, 60 seconds. seconds. So <laughs> I, I would say uh, that wherever uh, humans are in their history, whether it's now or 2,000 years uh, ago or 1,000 years from now, we're always going to be dealing in a common currency of storytelling, of, um, of myth-making, and I can say more about that, um, what I mean by that, uh, of language, of emotion, of symbol, uh, and, and this is really what the humanities is all about. And, and if we don't, if we don't understand our stories, if we don't understand our language, and we don't understand these in a really rich and uh, sophisticated way, uh, we, we're not going to be able to relate to one another. Uh, you know, and, and the world is more diverse. The world is more multicultural. Uh, on any given day, uh, you know, just walking down a street in, in D.C., you, you could pass. Pass by someone, uh, you know, uh, representing 10, 15 different cultures, and if you don't have uh, the tools to analyze their their stories and their history and their language, um, their their emotion, their perspectives on the world, uh, then then we're all going to be like zombies to each other. Mm. That's that was a little more than 60 seconds, but no, that's great. Well, let me follow up by asking a couple of specifics. So. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Keene Academy and the center would agree on everything you said. So we, by our very nature, are inclined towards story. Uh, we have a natural affinity for myth and for myth-making. Um, we, we rely on symbols, some, sometimes unknowingly, uncritically, uh, mm-hmm. but yet, gosh, life is just full of symbols. And, and so to be attuned to it and to... to to think about, to reflect on it. These are really important exercises, especially for young people in their, right. in their formative years. Right. So let, let's go to some specific stories. Mm-hmm. So um, the most famous stories, say, from the ancient Greek world would be the Iliad and the Odyssey, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, Homeric epics. Yeah. You're an epic scholar. You wrote your dissertation on the Argonautica. Is that yes, uh, yeah. Apollonius of Rhodes, yes. Yeah, so which Thank is um, a, a work not known probably to many mm-hmm. people in the audience, but um, but an epic work. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, can you speak to the, the the staying power of epic poetry from the ancient Greek world and uh, 
as a specific example of how story, myth, yeah, uh, sure. symbol continue to be important parts of what it means to be human. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, maybe I'll uh, just because it's kind of new and novel, I'll, I'll speak to the Argonautica, um, and this is, this is a third uh, century BC epic by um, Apollonius uh, from the island of of Rhodes, and it's about the quest for the golden fleece. Okay, and. Uh, it's about um, Jason, uh, this uh, uh, would-be prince from an area uh, called Yolkus, trying to round up uh, 50 of the greatest heroes of the time to go on this, this expedition for the fleece. And, uh, I mean, so it's a, it's a story about a quest. Uh, we should all, and to some extent do, think about uh, our lives as a quest. We're all questing for something, whether it's a degree or a job, or, you know, a spouse or um, children's, you know, we're, we're on this quest. And um, a, lo- a lot of the epic is uh, an opportunity to evaluate the meaning of the quest. You know, well, why, why exactly would someone want to do this? Uh, what are the consequences of doing it? Uh, what, are, what is the collateral damage of doing it? Uh, one of the big uh, kind of moral questions of, of the epic is kind of to what extent is it okay to use someone else to get what you want, because that's what Jason does. He, he uses the help of Medea, uh, the famous uh, princess of uh, Colchis. Uh, she helps him win the fleece, and uh, once they have the fleece, uh, her father uh, pursues Jason, and uh, they, uh, they they do some some ugly things in order to keep um, keep the father from from catching them. And one of the things Jason contemplates is, well, like maybe I should just get rid of Medea. Maybe I've uh, she, she's uh, served her purpose here, and, and I can move on. And that's a that's a great uh, question that a lot of quest stories and a lot of ancient epics wrestle with. Um, the other big thing that's beautiful about the Argonautica is that it explores the psychological realism of, uh, let's say, the, well, both the experience of love, because Jason falls in love uh, with Medea and um, you know, she falls in love with him, but also as a leader, uh, Jason often grapples with the burdens of leadership. What is it like to be responsible for 50 people who are all heroes and uh, who have their own talents and their own abilities, but you don't know how this is going to work out. Uh, you, you lose people along the way. How do you grieve for them? Do you, you know, um, how, how do you avoid being distracted by these kinds of things? So uh, I, I, I think it's a it's a rich, a very rich text in that way that, uh, you know, I, I'm sure I've read it 15 times and every time I still, you know, pick up new things from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if I understand you correctly, then, Reading the Argonautica, among other things, is is a wonderful in, encounter with uh, storytelling, which illuminates our own experience. So uh, there are conflicts and there are exercises in leadership in, internal to the poem that, in turn, um, can be a kind of light that shines on on our lives too. Right? Yeah, no, absolutely. As I was saying before, um, with the what, what is the psychological experience of being responsible for other people? And there's a great moment in the second book of the Argonautica. It's broken down into to four books. There's a great moment where <clears throat> Jason says, and, and to me this is one of the most fundamental things uh, about leadership responsibility, he says um, 
you all, uh, the Argonauts, uh, have to worry about your own problems mm-hmm. as, as members of this organization. You have to worry about your own lives. You have to worry about the, the part that you're going to play in helping us uh, get the fleece. But I have to worry about all of you. Uh, and, and I, you know, he, he, he says, you know, I'm, I'm sleepless, like I'm, uh, I'm in agony, uh, losing sleep, worrying about uh, if, if we won't make it or not. And it's a great moment. Like, and, and to me, I, when I talk um, about this work and its relation to leadership, I always uh, ask students and I ask people the, the question, as a leader, is it better for you to project kind of a, a always a confident facade and always be a source of high spirit for your followers like they look to you and say yeah you know it's going to be fine because the leader is fine or is it okay to share some of your vulnerability and and actually express doubt and uncertainty and weakness and things like that and as it turns out for jason because he's so tightly bonded Mm -hmm. with his organization there they actually rally around him when he uh, when he says this and they say, you know, it's going to be fine. And then they go and they erect a an altar to the goddess, uh, what in Greek is called Homanoia, uh, which is a, is, it's a goddess of, um, we, we might say, unity of mind or unity of purpose. In other words, if, you, if you're part of an organization and everybody believes in the purpose, everybody shares um, that resolve and has, has a shared sense of vision like you can be yourself a little bit more you can let your guard down mm-hmm. uh, and you don't have to be the sole um, EMF um, that's um, that's driving the organization but that, that idea of homonoia mm-hmm. of uh, same mindedness or like mindedness is a really um, it, it's an exciting idea just to contemplate in within an organization the uh, an epic poem is obviously not structured the same way as um, a didactic work or an expository work. Mm-hmm. So we can learn a lot about leadership from, say, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Sure, yeah. And he's got a clear methodology. He, mm-hmm. you know, in a sense, he, you know, he surveys the poli. He surveys people that he knew in the world right. about every constitution he gets his right. hands on. And then he would form categories, and then within the categories, he would form a hierarchy. And he had a clear anthropology, and that would be sort of a, a margin by which he would, you know, mm-hmm. gauge which claim to happiness, which claim claimed right. the good life, etc. So that clearly is not the methodology or approach, right, of an uh, of an epic poet. Yeah, he's going to rely more on on the sensual, yeah. on metaphor, on mm-hmm. simile, etc. So can you can you walk us into the Argonautica by way of uh, the the tools that the poet has? as opposed to the tools that the philosopher has? Yeah, oh my gosh, that's such a great uh, question. And just on that theme, I, I, I would say emphatically that you need both. Uh, you know, it, it, almost, you know, like so... Um, you mean philosophy and poetry? Yeah, philosophy, philosophy and, and poetry. In, in, in other words, I think... Uh, you need the experience of poetry, the, 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 the visceral impact that it can have um, to put you in a, in a more reflective mindset. But then you need the reflection itself. You need, you need to develop a critical vocabulary for what, you're, what you've been experiencing in the poetry. So uh, in terms of the Argonautica... Uh, the, the way the ancient audience would have, the ancient audience very much would have processed it through their understanding of the epics uh, that come down to us from so-called Homer. We don't really know right. who Homer was, but uh, Apollonius's audience would have been very familiar with the Iliad and the Odyssey and with a whole host of other 
um, works of literature as well as works on geography and ethnography. In other words, it's a very what we would call an intertextual experience. You, you can't read a line of um, uh, the, the poetry in the Argonautica without knowing the, the geography and the, you know, the places that are referenced or the, you know, whenever uh, a character is mentioned, there's a whole uh, past um, mythology. I think someone can appreciate the Argonautica with, with some background or, you know, with minimal background. It really, it, it, it's the kind of thing, like you say, you have to have this cultural literacy. And because life is short, we all have to make decisions about what are the works of art that we want to be most culturally literate in uh, and not. And, and what century was um, the Argonautica written in? So it was the third century, we think maybe around 255 BCE, okay. something like that. Right. So, uh, And yeah. we do know um, who Apollonius was. Yeah, yeah no, he, he was a librarian of Alexandria. Okay. And, yeah, uh, we, I mean, it's, we, we don't know a ton, but uh, he was a historical figure. Uh, and he, he's always... Uh, Located as sort of like the lesser of the three epic poets in the ancient world, you have uh, Homer with the Iliad and the Odyssey, and then you have uh, the Aeneid with uh, with the Roman poet uh, Virgil, and then Apollonius is kind of in between. And which, by the way, if you want to really understand the Aeneid, it's also really good to know the Argonautica. There was yeah. a, uh, well, yeah. a constant process of. Um, building on what building on and reacting to what mm-hmm. previous authors had done, and I mean you could do this all the way through Dante mm-hmm. and Milton mm-hmm. uh, as well, of course. So um, something like the Oresteia, mm-hmm. the um, obviously part of the backdrop there is the Trojan War. So there are roughly five centuries that elapsed. No, no more than that. More like uh, what uh, seven centuries would have elapsed roughly between what we know about the Trojan War and. Right, and, if, and, if the Trojan when, War happened, if it, uh, happened, it was, right, yeah. yeah. And where, when Aeschylus ruled. <clears throat> right. So, um, what, is there something comparable you could uh, nail down for us in terms of Jason and the Argonauts and, and the writing of the Argonautica? Like the, 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 the something like the chronology? Yeah, the, sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the fascinating thing about the Argonautica is these are the heroes prior to the generation of the Trojan War. Hmm. So it's it's the fathers of some of the heroes that you will encounter in the Iliad and the Odyssey. So Peleus, the father of Achilles, okay. is one of the, the Argonaut, uh, Argonauts. And there's, a, again, getting back to this idea of intertextuality and illusion, there's a very uh, cute scene when Peleus is departing on the Argo. That's the name of the, sh- the ship that they, they sail on. When he's departing from home, uh, he waves goodbye to the baby Achilles. Uh, oh, you know, yes. and, and we all, you know we all see that. We we know like oh isn't that crazy? Like he's going to be the the yeah. hero of the the next generation. Yeah. Uh, Telamon. And it's hard to think a, of Achilles as a baby, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that, and that's another um, kind of fascination with Hellenistic poetry is talking about heroes. At different ages, you know, they, they loved the what's often called psychological realism, like really thinking about these characters mm-hmm. as real, as as people who age, as people who have different moods and different settings, and, and things like that. We with we'll come back to uh, helping our, our listeners and myself understand a little bit more about um, Hellenic Hellenism. Mm-hmm. So there's something that transcends uh, the era, right? Because uh, we're still talking about Hellenism. It's still a, a source for us. Sure. Um, but then there's the uh, Hellenistic history, right? At some point, the contributors to Hellenism 
cease to be, right? Or that is, or there's a, the body of contribution to Hellenism comes to some kind of conclusion. Is that a fair? Uh, well, uh, I'm I. I, I don't think I would say that, and I okay. think uh, most modern Greeks would not say that. That right. Hel- Hellenism, <laughs> Hellenism is something that, uh, as, as I say, spans the the millennia. Um, uh, sometimes when people say Hellenism, it, it's kind of a um, uh, another term for humanism, mm-hmm. or you know, another term for kind of enlightenment or rational inquiry, and, and, it, and it derives from kind of an idealization of um, the, the, the so-called classical period of Greek literature, okay. uh, the, the Greek tragedies or Greek philosophy, but and as I say, emphasizing kind of like freedom of inquiry and imagination and experimentation and thought and, and literature. But, but again, I mean, Hellenism, the, the, the modern Greeks call themselves Hellenes. Like this is, sure. it extends uh, all the way. In terms of a Hellenistic period, of literature, this is typically uh, what is described as uh, what happens to uh, Hellenic culture or Hellenic literature after the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BCE, and it often uh, is thought to extend um, to the Battle of Actium in 31 BCE when uh, Antony and Cleopatra lose to Octavian, who would become the Emperor Augustus, and then it's sort of seen uh, as a Roman world. Those are somewhat artificial markers, but the the, the importance of Alexander the Great was that uh, through his conquests and through the cities and libraries he established, uh, he paved the way for the spread of Hellenic culture to uh, what was at the time for them much of the known world, so you know North Africa and uh, Near East and so forth, and that, that led to the as they say, the spread of uh, of those Greek tragedies and epics and uh, philosophy and so forth. Mm-hmm. Very good. Um, so um, you, I understand, are either in the process of or just completed the process of starting uh, a humanities and leadership organization called Calion. Yes. That had a, yes, Calion. Correctly? Okay, yeah. great. Well, tell us about that project and, and tell us about the meaning of that word, Calion. So, sure. Um, the word Calion is just the, the Greek word. It's a comparative adjective uh, or adverb, if you like, it, 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 that means better. Uh, it's from the Greek word kolos, which means uh, beautiful or or good. And uh, kolos or kalion give us words like calligraphy, beautiful mm. writing, or the, the name Callista, she who is most uh, beautiful. So kalion um, arises. So, so it's an organization, and I should uh, give a shout out to my co-founders, uh, Mallory Monaco Katerine, who is at Tulane, and John Esposito, who is at UNC Greensboro, mm-hmm. and um, Sarah Ferrario, who is at Catholic University. And, and we're sort of the four co-founders of this. Although, uh, as an organization, we already operate with uh, dozens of other members. It's kind of a consortium now of uh, faculty and uh, other. Uh, members of various leadership communities who want to talk about, and here's the the reason for Calion, who want to talk about the role that the humanities can play, both in the study of leadership, uh, but also in the training of leaders. Like we we really <clears throat> we believe and we want to uh, continue to explore ways in which uh, 
the humanities can can train someone to be a better leader. And I can say what I mean by a better leader, or what we might mean by a better leader uh, in a moment. But uh, our, our goal is, is basically uh, our mission is to um, to study this process or to explore this process of humanities in leadership, both at the level of pedagogy. Mm-hmm. So we've developed a, a number of uh, courses and course material. Like right now, uh, Mallory is editing a series with Sage Publication on emotional intelligence and uh, leadership in the ancient world. How, how do you um, study things like perspective taking and self-awareness, self-knowledge, uh, things like that. And uh, so we do that. Uh, we have a podcast where we talk to people in leadership roles and we ask them to say kind of what were the works of literature, works of art that uh, informed you in your development as a leader. What are the things that still inform you? And we look a lot at language like, uh, you know, how, how do leaders think of themselves? Do they use the word leader to uh, to describe what they do? And what do they mean by that when they, when they see themselves in their uh, capacity as, as leaders? So. Uh, as I say, it, it derives from this um, I, this belief. The reason we call it Kalion is the belief that uh, the humanities is what makes leadership better. Because there's, there's all sorts of great leadership study in business, political science, military, uh, military science. Uh, those are all great, but we want to bring it back as much as possible to the story, the emotion, uh, the values, the, the language, uh, the symbols, all of these things uh, that we think are part of the, uh, you know, the core of the humanities. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the origins of the word uh, education, mm-hmm. um, at least the Latin origins, has to do with leading out, right? Yeah. So, uh, so well, um, this may just be a coincidence, but do you, do you see an intrinsic connection between uh, leadership and and teaching or leadership and education, and, and obviously you you want to train college students in how to understand leadership, and you're interested sure. in learning from yeah, yeah. leaders what they mean by that. But is there sort of a, an inherent or a symbiotic relationship between education and leadership? Oh, I, I think it's inextricable. I, I think uh, you know. Arguably, the greatest leader in the ancient world was Socrates. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if, if you believe, uh, if you believe in what he was doing, and, and that is like bringing people to the good, uh, like you can't get you know more leaderly than that. Um, but basically, you know, to, to take a, a definition of leadership out of uh, Xenophon, who was a contemporary of Socrates, we, we're interested in the process by which one person. Uh, creates an opportunity for another person to have what they need or to become what they need to be. Okay, just take it very simply. It's, it's for us. It's not. It's not initially or not directly. Obviously, about power or influence or or even responsibility. It really is about who are the people in the world who know how to make it so that others have what they need. Uh, and that, that knowledge might be as simple as, I see you need a glass of water, so I give you a glass of water. That's like you know, 0.1% of you know, leadership. Uh, the real leadership would be, you know, or the, the, the more interesting leadership might be, who is the person who makes it so that lots of people have glasses of water and that they're you know, not thirsty and things like that? Uh, who are the people that transform us, who are the people that know how to make us better versions of ourselves, whether it's to train us in how to fish or uh, in how to think better. Like for, for us, that's 
that's the core of, of, of leadership. It's really not about power or influence. You may need power and influence to help people have what they need and become what they need to be, but that's not uh, that's not what we're primarily interested in. So Socrates um, certainly was looking out to improve each interlocutor. So he'd meet someone in the streets of Athens, and he would probe them and push them and press them and challenge them and you know he, at least he claimed that yeah. he was trying to help them grow in virtue or that's or, debatable you know, self, actually self-reflection I, uh, I, I, Socrates is a, is a very interesting case okay. of leadership uh, if, if you take him at his word mm-hmm. in, in Plato's Apology for example he's just trying to understand the Delphic Oracle when it tells him that no one is wiser than Socrates mm-hmm. so what Socrates says is well I don't think I know any Anything about anything. So let me go to a person who's an expert in justice, and all I need to do is prove that they know something about justice, and I will have disproven the Delphic Oracle. And so he goes out and uh, and asks this this question, and you know he reveals kind of in short order that uh, these people are ignorant. And yes, for the people who. Uh, who acknowledge their ignorance, who come, you know, th- they are benefited by it. But interestingly, it's it's only a side effect of that curiosity on Socrates' part. There are other versions of Socrates that you get, say, in, well, in other dialogues of Plato or in Xenophon's memorabilia, where he, it does seem to be more of a philanthropic gesture that he, he, he sees someone yeah. in ignorance and he says, you know, I want to, to remedy uh, you of that. But, but I'm, I'm also, as I say, fascinated by the idea that one could be a, a leader unintentionally, even the, the followers of Socrates. Was he trying to help them or was he just giving them uh, uh, indirectly an education in how to investigate really important moral questions? Yeah. Yeah, I guess in some of the other dialogues, it, uh, I would agree with you that it, it seems more evident. So in the, it seems like he's really concerned for Mino, mm-hmm. and he's really sure. trying to help Mino yeah. get his Good. head together. Or the Fido, yeah, the immortality yeah. of the soul. And he's very concerned about his his uh, listeners, uh, his young disciples in Plato's Republic. Mm-hmm. You know, so sure. the idea that they would buy into. You know, some version of the Ring of Gyges and say, well, we mm-hmm. all want to cut corners and if we can get away with it, you know, that's pretty attractive. Right. And that seems, I mean, that's that's real time, real life, uh, you know, uh, concern. And uh, and then he, yeah, so, yeah, so I, I guess, yeah, so it is interesting. He does spend a lot of time on that Delphic Oracle and, mm-hmm. and uh, the Apology. But so, mm-hmm. but, and then, so do you read him? Uh, uh, we say uh, so. A leader is looking out for the for the good of others. So, is that a civic good? Is that a common good in the political sense, or do you say you know some people say he's really ultimately just devoted to philosophy, uh, and uh, this sort of transcends any particular civic community? When I mean, we know he only left Athens right to defend her on the battlefield, right? So yeah. uh, he seemed like he you know he put his life at at, at stake for them, right? Right. No, I I think. Um I, I think for so- for Plato's Socrates, shall we say, um, the the state is is valuable because it facilitates the opportunity to do philosophy. This is one of the reasons he says you can make the philosopher become the philosopher king. Is you can go to them and say, "Hey, look, we raised you. This, the, you would not have had the access to learning." Um, outside, if you had grown up in the wild, you wouldn't have had this access 
to learning. And since you love learning so much, uh, you should feel a sense of gratitude toward your city state and, and therefore, you know, be the king over it or serve it. Um, so yeah, it's very much, <clears throat> excuse me. And I think even, well, it, it, it's there in, in Plato for sure in Xenophon, um, you know, they ask um, Socrates at one point, well, why didn't you get into political life? Um, and, and for Plato, the answer is kind of obvious. Like, who would want this, you know, weirdo, this guy asking all these crazy, awkward questions at meetings? Uh, and who would want that person uh, in political life? But he said in, the, in Xenophon, he says, it's because I really uh, saw, saw myself as capable of training the next generation of statesmen. Uh, that that it, it, it is a centrally a, a civic thing. I mean, I think uh, Socrates comes across as as loving his city very much, even though it was ultimately the city that would kill him. But you know, he he loves the idea of the city and loves the idea. He's very uh, community minded. Um, loves human companionship. Mm-hmm. Xenophon talks a lot of him as uh, having what the Greeks called philanthropia, which should not be translated as philanthropy because that word has too many misleading uh, connotations. It, it really means um, so- Socrates saw everyone as a friend, mm-hmm. as, as someone he could be intimate with, that he you know, could reveal himself and they would reveal themselves to him. And uh, one of the things that Socrates did as part of his philanthropy was that he was a great matchmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea is you could go to Socrates and say, hey, I'm having a problem with this, mm-hmm. or I want to learn about that. And Socrates, because he was so philanthropic, he was moving in so many different circles. He could say, oh, I know a guy across town who can help you learn more about Homer or learn more about generalship or something like that. And um, Xenophon says Socrates deserves to be celebrated as much as the, the other philanthropists of the day who were spending money funding, uh, you know, triremes, either the ships of war mm-hmm. of the Athenians or people who were funding mm-hmm. uh, uh, Greek tragedies, things like that. Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, just by being a good matchmaker, you were actually doing a, a great service to humanity. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, Aristotle uh, in the, the Enigmatic Ethics, which, which I understood to be lectures for uh, potential strategoi, you know, mm-hmm. leaders, yeah. you know, military yeah. and civic leaders, spends quite a bit of time on friendship. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I guess he would share that emphasis on that one kind of love as the express right. and, right. and the, the consideration of the other person. Then we have Socrates dedicated to the love of wisdom. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like right dead center to the enterprise of, of, the, of at least two kinds of leaders there in Socrates and the yeah. leaders that Aristotle was training. You have yeah. love as a, a central premium. Yeah, well, and it, isn't that funny that um, today so, so many of our pursuits of wisdom are kind of solitary uh, activities, you know, it's it's reading a book under a tree, or uh, you know, it's your you, you know you go through school and you have your individual study, and maybe you have dialogue with your classmates or some dialogue with your uh, professor or something, but it's it's not nearly the um, the activity of friendship, the practice of friendship and community that it, it was for people like Xenophon or. Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they, these were all members of of, of clubs, of, of communities, of you know people regularly exchanging ideas and going to you know dinners and drinking parties together and things like that. And yeah, and, and the bond of friendship was mm-hmm. was really central to that. And and I, I worry you, you've talked about the 
decline of the humanities. These, these days, uh, we, we, we tend to blame the humanities for everything as, as we erode all of the structures that traditionally made the humanities so vibrant. I mean, it's like asking, you know, what, why can't a rose grow in salty soil? Like it must be the rose's fault that it's not adapting to the, the changing environment. But, you know. Uh, explain that a little more. That's a very interesting okay. uh, observation. Well, so well, what yeah. are the structures that you have in mind? Well, uh, yeah, I'll just give, give you a, a, a pretty straightforward exa- example that I've only uh, recently been appreciating the ramifications of when you and I went to college, I would be willing to bet that, um, let's say when, when we read the Odyssey in a class, um, the, the, you know, the big emphasis was you needed to understand it. It, it was an analytical exercise, right? You needed to, how, how does the Odyssey work? Was there a Homer, uh, you know, what is oral poetry? How do the themes, and then you would, you know, you would write about it. Maybe you would have a little bit of in-class discussion, but there was also, I would be willing to bet, I certainly know this uh, for myself, I would be willing to bet that when you studied these things, there was an understanding that you were going to go away to your dorm room, or you were going to go away to a party, or you were going to interact with other people where you were going to be making meaning of the Odyssey on your own terms. You would be asking yourself, you know, what, what does it mean to go home? You know, do I want to go home? Why would I want to go home? What does it mean to have a partner like Penelope and have the like-mindedness that Odysseus and Penelope have? And these would not just be passing things for you. you this would not be a five-minute exercise you did at the end of the class. It was an understanding that you were really to digest and process this work on your own. Well, we have pretty much eroded or eradicated that from the college or university experience, that, that part of it now, because uh, students, unfortunately, live uh, hyper-scheduled lives. They, they live highly credentialed lives, and they are trained that if, if you don't get a credential for this, if you don't get a grade or something, they can go on a CV. Why would you ever uh, engage in what, what seems like a, you know, a frivolous, uh, indulgent uh, exercise as like taking, you know, two hours on the weekend and talking to your friends about the meaning of the Odyssey on your own terms or mm-hmm. just going, you know, for yourself. And as, as well as I can tell, uh, students are, are not doing this and they're not often encouraged to do this because they're working a job, they're doing, you know, some kind of extracurricular activity, they're getting an internship, or maybe they're taking an overload in courses because they want to, you know, get that job out of college as quickly mm-hmm. as possible and pay off a student loan. That's just one example yeah. um, that, that I would say. Uh, where, where you know, we are just not appreciating. And, 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 the, and the irony is, well, one irony is the things I can grade a student on, like did you write a thoughtful essay or do you know who Calypso is in the Odyssey or something like that, the things that I, I, I can grade a student on are important, but that's hardly going to be the most important thing for them in life. 50 years down the road, if they don't um, know who Calypso is, it's not the end of the world. Nobody would say... You have to. You can't die until you can tell me Calypso, or that her name comes from the Greek klepto, meaning to steal or hide away. Yeah, She's yeah, the one yeah. Who hides. You know, the fine. If you if you don't, it's nice if you know some of these things. But uh, really, what 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 you would like to say is that you read about you read about the Odyssey and you were changing your behaviors and changing your outlook on life as you were reading it as a. 18-year-old college student, even if you just change it like incrementally, if it, if it made you 
if it kinked your understanding of what a romantic partner might be like and change, you know, just a little bit. Now, when I go on a date, I'm going to ask a, a few questions differently. Or, um, you know, now when I think about my home, I'm going to look at it differently and I'm going to engage with it differently. Like, again, just incremental things. Uh, not that, and some can be life changing. You might read something that really changes who you are, but uh, being able to use literature in this way throughout your life to just make incremental changes. I think that's what we'd say we really want. But as again, I, I think we've eroded that process. And now we're only um, asking students to do things that we can grade very easily, like analytic things uh, with, with the work. So that, that's, as I say, just one answer. Yeah, so, very interesting. I, I, um, I guess in my, my own teaching, I, I'd be more inclined to emphasize the uh, like it's the love, the the world that uh, Homer has invited us into, mm-hmm. and then uh, I've never stopped loving going into that world and talking about that world with yeah. my colleagues, my students, and uh, mm-hmm. so I'm I'm a little less inclined to take domestic lessons away from the Odyssey, and uh, <laughs> but 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 internal to the Odyssey, uh, Agamemnon does counsel uh, Odysseus to go back and stealth. Yeah. <laughs> His exactly. own return yeah, to home yeah. is not so good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so, so just on that, that domestic theme, I mean, to me, one of the uh, the beautiful ways that the Odyssey ends, and by the way, I should say, I, I don't think the whole of the Odyssey is beautiful. I think there are some, some elements that maybe uh, were seen as beautiful in the ancient world, but are now uh, less so. I mean, for example, like Telemachus, in order to assert his dominance of the household, he has to tell his mom to shut up. Uh, like, and he uses a specific Greek word, mythos. He says mythos or speaking yeah. is for men. Public speaking is for men. You know, so you you need to silence. And, and I think we need to be sensitive to those kinds yeah. of things when we read. But on the domestic uh, uh, aspect. Uh, when Odysseus goes back home in uh, book book 23 and he's been recognized by Penelope, uh, the poet says that the two of them spent the whole night together ch- telling each other their stories, yeah. what they had been up to for 20 years. And to me, that that's like... That, 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 that's a mark of a good relationship. Now, now, would I say every relationship has to have that level of uh, loquacity to it? Not necessarily, but uh, I, I think, you know, when you and your partner enjoy hearing what you, you know, just on a daily basis, what did you do today? Oh, this, like, here, here are the battles I'm fighting, here are the battles you're fighting. To me, that's that's kind of a, a beautiful universal thing about, uh, about human partnership. And, and earlier you used the word quest, yeah. And, uh, you know, that, and, uh, Tolkien uses that language, of course. And so the, mm-hmm. well into, uh, you know, closer to our own time, we still have the, the power of story and the power of, um, going out, coming back and, and sharing that story with others. Yeah. Making, making life rich, making our, our love for one another, our friendships, our communities, yeah. all the more rich and, and, and wonderful. Can I tie that back to leadership? Please. Yeah. So, uh, and, and this will be a, a little more tidbit of etymology for your, for your audience. Um, the, uh, the modern English word scepter comes from the Greek word skeptron. Uh, and uh, the, the great 20th century French linguist Emile Benveniste uh, showed us the origin of this word. Uh, you, l- l- let me ask you this. Do you think the scepter is originally a stylized club 
Like, why, why does a leader hold oh, yeah. something? Is it, is it to show, like, I could hit you with this if I needed to? Uh, is it, to go back to Tolkien, is it a wand of some sort, like yeah. magic? What do you think, uh, if, uh, as you understand a scepter? Well, it's a good question. I've never reflected on it. My, my initial, or my, my instinct here is to say that it was uh, a symbol to those who saw it and sort of... Uh, would bind uh, the leader to those mm-hmm. who followed him. But why hold a scepter? Why not hold a an olive branch or a rock yeah. or? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. That's a, a good question. Yeah. So, so the the answer is it's neither a wand nor a club. What Ben Venice showed was that a scepter is a stick that you put your full weight on. In other words, it's a walking stick. Uh-huh. Okay. And that means that it's the attribute of the messenger. Mm-hmm. So, so the person holding the scepter is someone who has a message. Getting back to, uh-huh. you said, you know, story, you know, the journeys we've been on and sharing yeah. stories. He, he's, a, he's a messenger, uh, often who, who has been away maybe on a pilgrimage to visit a, a temple or a, an oracle, like the Oracle at Delphi, uh-huh. gone and come back and now has something uh, to, to speak to the community. And that that's, the, that's what legitimizes the leader holding the scepter. It's not because I can beat you up with this stick or that I can wave it in your face and you'll think it's like dazzling and beautiful or something. It's because we, we have this understanding that I am a messenger. I, I have been somewhere and I have something to say that the community needs to hear. So, so when I talk about the scepter, to students in my class, I say to them, like, well, where have you been in life uh, that, that we need to hear something from you? Mm. And, if, and, and if you don't, you, you probably do have something that we need to hear. You've probably had some experience. Uh, so share it. Speak up. That's the most fundamental leadership thing anyone ever does is speak up. Uh, but if you haven't, uh, if, you, if you don't feel like you have a message, <clears throat> well, at least start imagining the journey, the quest you would like to go on so that when you complete it, you come back to us and we as your community will stand in awe of the message that that quest um, uh, brings, you know. Well, that's a a wonderful and a a beautiful image uh, to end our conversation on. Thank you very much, Norman Sandridge. I really enjoyed our conversation and I wish you all the best in the the development and building of Calion. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a great pleasure. Great. Great. Let's Best do this of luck again to you. sometime. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode. Sources is a production of the Canaan Academy Podcast Network. Our editor and producer is Helen DeSell Zwerneman. We have more great episodes on our website and new ones arriving soon, so please join us again and bring your family and friends. I'm Andrew Swarnham, your host. I look forward to meeting you again on Sources. <laughs>